This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, September 21st, 2009. I'm Caleb Brown. Cap and trade, as currently formulated, may threaten key trading relationships with India and China present more than a few problems at the WTO. Sally James, trade policy analyst at the Cato Institute and author of a new paper, A Harsh Climate for Trade, How Climate Change Proposals Threaten Global Commerce, comments. In order to placate domestic industry who's worried about the competitive effects of climate change legislation, lawmakers have, have loaded the bill up with a lot of giveaways and loopholes and and also trade barriers that I think will make the legislation unworkable um, and definitely harmful. Cap and trade as an idea was meant to create an artificial restriction on carbon that uh, industry can use. But if you're taking funds and subsidizing industries that are dealing with the fact that you've internalized these costs... It seems to defeat at least some of the purpose of trying to have uh, a cap-and-trade program. Well, definitely. The, the whole idea of cap-and-trade, which is kind of a – it's a best approximation of a tax, basically, but politicians are allergic to the word tax, so cap-and-trade is kind of the, the next best in their eyes uh, solution. Certainly from a strict economic perspective, you can set it up in a way so it, that, that it is equivalent to a tax. That's not what's happened here, but in theory you could do so. But basically the whole idea is to increase the cost of carbon so people use less. But once you increase the cost of something, people don't like that. Or certain industries say, oh, but we need a special carve-out for us because we're special. So really what they're trying to do is have it both ways. They're trying to cut carbon emissions, whether you think that's a, a worthy goal or not, that's what they want to do. But then on the other hand, they want to offset the increased costs that that necessitates. And it just this is what happens when, you, when politicians try to have it both ways. A secondary effect being that some of these subsidies may count as a subsidy under WTO rule? Definitely. When, when most people think of a subsidy, they think of a government outlay, a government giving money to a certain industry or a certain firm or consumers. But under WTO rules, subsidy, the definition of a subsidy can also include revenue foregone. In other words, it's money the government would otherwise collect but has made um, a case for not collecting it. That's exactly what's happened here. There's a few conditions for whether a subsidy uh, is problematic under WTO rules. Uh, first of all, is there some kind of outlay or revenue foregone? That's pretty obvious that the free emissions that, that the government is proposing to give out would probably meet that definition. They are specific. In other words, they are targeted towards certain industry or certain subset of industry. That's a problem to the extent that these subsidies would encourage more production than what would otherwise occur under a cap-and-trade regime, that is also problematic. And if that extra production then harms the interests of foreign producers, it would appear on its face to be game, set and match for a WTO violation. Part of the issue here is U.S. imports of energy-intensive products from abroad. How does this affect our relationships with India and China and trying to externalize internal costs that we're putting on ourselves? Is that a way well, of thinking I, I, of it? I guess so. But what, what's basically going on is that firms are afraid, U.S. firms are afraid, that if they're saddled with extra costs 
from, uh, I guess, if they're saddled with extra costs from complying with these new regulations, to the extent they are, they don't get free permits, for example, they're worried that other nations who have not uh, subjected their industry to regulation will be able to undercut the US either in the US home market through imports or in our export markets abroad, and that will affect US competitiveness. That's the basic argument that these lawmakers have. They therefore want to propose uh, carbon tariffs, if you like. They're called international reserve allowance, but what they actually amount to is a tariff on goods from countries who have not done in the US's eyes enough to uh, satisfy lawmakers that they are contributing to saving the planet. So the US essentially hands other countries a an advantage and then also in the bill takes that tries to take that advantage away. That, that's right. They're trying to offset, for want of a better word, that, that advantage that they supposedly give them. But if you look at the data, I'm not sure that's borne out. First of all, for example, steel uh, is the uh, good in which China has the largest share of US imports, and that's only 17%. So 17% of US imports of steel come from China. That's the largest share they have. In cement, it's about 13%. In paper, it's about 13%. Aluminium, it's about 6%. So they really don't have a large uh, import share in that sense. So it's not clear to me that, that, that China is such a big threat that it's worth starting a trade war. Well, it begs the question, then, why are we ultimately going to try to be punishing India and China if they provide us so little of these goods? Because it looks good, because it makes intuitive sense to lawmakers who have not, surprise, surprise, thought through the implications of what they're proposing. This Waxman-Markey bill is full of contradictory statements. It's full of statements which, if you know anything about economics, don't make sense or they've left a lot of things kind of unsaid that sound good, like, you know, the US will assess whether China has made appropriate steps to, you know, that's basically what they're saying. Well, what's appropriate? Who defines that? What if China decides that the appropriate metric for imposing carbon tariffs is per capita emissions? Then the US exports are really in trouble. Have lawmakers thought that through? I'm not convinced they have. Um, they want to say that, you know, if we if we say to them, you can only sell to this very lucrative United States market if you sign up to uh, if you sign up to carbon reduction international agreements. Uh, that sounds like what they call good leverage. But for China, for example. 0.5 of a percent of its iron and steel is export to the United States. It's not a massive market for them. So it's not clear that we have a whole lot of leverage anyway. I guess what I'm saying is the trade provisions in this bill, not only are they probably ineffective at uh, preventing the kind of leakage that lawnmakers are concerned about, they're going to be very harmful if there's retaliation or, God forbid, litigation. And really, if we want an international agreement on this thing, and everyone agrees if it's going to be tackled, it has to be at the international level, you're going to need China and India's cooperation. And they have signalled everything but openness to these sorts of trade provisions. It's seen as very combative by them. And I'm not sure that these sorts of provisions, even though they might make domestic political sense for certain lawmakers in certain sections of the country, it's ultimately going to be counterproductive to the goal of what they say they want, which is international agreement on climate change. 
Sally James is a trade policy analyst at the Cato Institute. Her new paper, A Harsh Climate for Trade, How Climate Change Proposals Threaten Global Commerce, is available at freetrade.org.